You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Well, always use the microphone as if it's on. Who am I berating? Who knows? This is the Anarchist World This Week broadcast via the Community Radio Network across Australia uh, from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. My name is Joseph Toscano and this is the Anarchist World This Week. Yes, we're live in the studio. Uh, the producer, Kelly Whitworth, and myself. Now, we've got some uh, sad news. We've got some exciting news. It's just a little bit like life. Now, the first thing I'd like to acknowledge is the death of uh, Vivian Marlowe. Uh, Vivian died uh, yesterday on the 11th of January after a long battle with uh, breast cancer. Vivian was relatively young and uh, she will be a great loss not just to her family and her friends but she's a great loss to the radical community especially the radical indigenous community in Victoria and the rest of Australia I'll uh, have more to say about Vivian's life next week I did interview her on Radical Australia a number of years ago hopefully we can um, find that uh, interview. We may not be able to, but if we do, we do. So, But the important thing is that uh, Vivian uh, was uh, a stalwart here at 3CR. She was a mother. She was an activist. And just a few months ago when she was dying, just to give you an idea of the spirit of Vivian, uh, when she was uh, dying from disseminated uh, breast carcinoma, she turned up at the CFMEU headquarters to berate the people who were attacking the CFMEU headquarters, the anti-vaxxers, just to tell them to grow up. Now, Vivian was just a slip of a woman, less than five foot tall, and she would lucky to be 40 kilograms. And uh, body was riddled with cancer, but she felt that the issue was so important that she uh, made the effort to go down there and uh, stand up for what she felt was right. So... So all I can say is goodbye to Vivian. Obviously, there will be funeral arrangements and there may even be a, a public uh, memorial, uh, a farewell celebration, but we'll keep you informed. As I said, she, she died yesterday on the 11th of January. I'd also like to say goodbye to Richard Tate, whose funeral I attended on Monday the 10th of January. Richard is well known in radical circles in Melbourne. He was 88. He died on the 30th of 
December in the Royal Melbourne Hospital after a long battle with uh, carcinoma cancer. Um, Richard was a foundation member of the Wednesday Action Group. He had the number three ticket to public interest before corporate. He was our third member. And that was in 2015. Now, he um, had a long and colourful history. It was good to see some of his, most of his family there at the funeral, at John Faulkner on Monday, but also good to see uh, a sprinkling of activists who had known him over the years. So uh, that's two very important people, as far as the radical community here in Victoria is concerned, who have died in the last uh, two weeks. And uh, we extend our condolences to their family and friend and fellow activists. I think when you think about people like Vivian and Mar- Vivian Marlowe and Richard Tate, I think about funeral arrangements in ancient Egypt. I know it sounds a bit weird, but the ancient Egyptians believed that at the time of death was a time of reckoning and they used to weigh oh, this is metaphorically the way the, the heart was weighed against a goose feather which represented the god Matt if the heart weighed more than the goose feather Amit, another god would devour the heart and that would be the end of that person if the goose feather, if the heart was lighter than the goose feather, than the feather from the body of the god Matt, the god of truth and justice, the doors to eternal life would be open to that person. Now, this is a myth, obviously. This is mythology and how people four or 5,000 years ago attempted to grapple with the, cons- the important concepts of life and death. And as far as Vivian and Richard are concerned, Vivian Marlow and Richard Tate are concerned, I'm very confident that although they had their problems and although they may have been involved in things that they were not happy about, that at the end of the day, their lives were more about good than bad and their heart would have weighed less than the goose feather. Now, eternal life, I think, in the 21st century isn't what we think it is, some jaunt in the park listening to harps. Eternal life, to a significant degree, is people remembering. And as long as one listener to this program remembers Vivian Marlowe or Richard Tate, they are still alive because it's the way they touched people during their life time is what's important. I think another thing that's important that uh, my producer Kelly Whitworth mentioned at the beginning of the program was that we need to celebrate people like Vivian Marlowe and Richard Tate before they die. I think as an activist it can be a very lonely, difficult path and uh, it's more common to be criticised than to actually be acknowledged and I think that somebody you know who's involved in social action or political action or community action, you know, it goes beyond what you'd expect. I think it's important that uh, you let them know while they're alive. 
say goodbye, Vivian Marlowe, goodbye, Richard Tate. Now, if you wonder what anarchism is all about, no, it's not about Egyptian mythology. Anarchism is a very simple concept. It comes from the Greek anarchos, which means without rulers. So the anarchist struggle was to create a society without rulers. Not without rules, but without rulers. What gives rulers, as we've seen around the world, whether it's Sudan or Burma or Kazakhstan or Russia or wherever, the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, very simply, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to share power through direct democratic methods and the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. So if you're involved in any of those struggles, whether you like it or not, you're an anarchist. Now, there's a lot of corporate crap around at the minute, a lot of corporate crap. And what do I mean by corporate crap? Obviously, in the 21st century, most of our thinking, most of our institutions are basically, to a significant degree, dominated by corporations. Because the private investment for private profit mantra, which dominates every aspect of our lives, basically ends in the elimination of competition and the creation of corporations which basically manipulate the system in order to suit their bottom line. There's a lot of corporate, as I said before, crap around. And I want to look at this concept because I want to look at a few things which are important. They may have uh, been served, sorry for the pun, you know, um, at the back of the court, sorry for that pun again. But there are things that are happening and we see the private investment for private profit mantra dominate things that they can't really dominate or address problems they can't address. For example, can green capitalism avert a climate emergency? I mean, the big thing these days is it's all about, you know, the climate emergency, which is real, and it's all about green capitalism addressing this issue. Now, capitalism, corporate capitalism, is based on a number of basic principles. One, it's anti-competitive. Two, it's centralised. Three, it needs to manufacture artificial needs. And four, it needs to make a profit. It needs to make a profit. So can pursuing a green solution based on capitalist principles avert a climate emergency? I mean, it's a real question because currently we're told that green capitalism is a win-win situation. Win-win situation. You address the climate emergency and you make a buck at the same time. It's a little bit like selling you a ticket on the last train ride to hell. Now, the dilemmas we find ourselves in today as far as the climate emergency are concerned are directly related to the domination of the planet's economy by corporate capitalism. Directly related by 
encouraging the creation of an economy which is based on the satisfaction of desire, not the satisfaction of need, but the, but the satisfaction of desire, and desire is infinite. So can green capitalism, in an era of you know, um, fixed resources, in an era of increasing population growth, in the era of increasing greenhouse emissions, actually avert that emergency by applying capitalist principles. Well, it can't. No way it can come near. It may be able to temporarily push aside the emergency, but the emergency is still there. Because we need to look at the type of economic models we have and the economic models which is we have which is dominant is the creation is the fulfilment of desire and the creation of artificial markets irrespective of the human social environmental cost and green capitalism is no different to dirty capitalism you know based on coal fossil fuels no different at the end of the day you may be able to shunt the problem aside for a few decades the problem is still there because the problem is based on consumption for consumption's sake. It's based on the centralisation of resources in fewer, fewer hands. So we're not seeing a majority of people involved in climate action talking about decentralisation as opposed to centralisation decentralising and we can move down that direction as far as power is concerned we're not talking about an economy based on need versus an economy based on infinite desire we're not talking about changes to lifestyle it's all about full steam ahead but instead of using fossil fuels, we will use green energy. As if we will avert that issue, and we won't. And that's the central, most important problem as far as corporate crap is concerned. The fact that the corporate mantra can be used to dominate any issue. Call it greenwash, call it whatever you like, but ultimately it's about private investment for private profit. Let's move on. Corporate economics. Now we are told consistently that the lifeblood of capitalism is competition. We're told the public sector is non-competitive, therefore it shouldn't be in the marketplace and government should get out of the way of the private sector. We're told that regulations, whether they're based on the environment, green or red, to protect workers, just gets in the way of making profits and governments should move out of the uh, business of uh, regulating to protect workers and the environment. We're told that... In a capitalist society, 
competition is automatic. But the ultimate end point of any capitalist society is the creation of corporations. And in many countries or sovereign nation states, corporations are owned totally by the private sector. And when you have the development of corporations, what that means is that competition is reduced because corporations reduce competition by buying out competitors or, if the competitors refuse to sell, by strangling them economically. And we see this over and over and over again, especially in Australia, where there are no antitrust laws. That's laws that prevent corporations dominating various fields of activity. So if you go into a major shopping centre, it's the same brands over and over again. You want to buy some hardware stuff, apart from the big one, the B, very hard finding hardware equipment anywhere, even online. That's competitive. And if you think, oh, I can do it online, well, it doesn't work that way. So what we need to do is to introduce competition into the corporate sector, into corporate economics, Because currently in 2022, every piece of government legislation which has gone through Parliament is about maximising corporate domination of the economy. And when I talk about corporate domination of the economy, I'm talking about corporate domination of small business and micro business. So that they basically have to rely on using cheap, non-unionised labour in order to be able to compete with large corporations. So how do you introduce competition to the corporate sector? The first way is to resurrect the public service. Now, today, the public service in Australia in 2022 is basically a mechanism in many ways where it hands out contracts to private corporations to provide services which were provided by the government. We should be looking at the reintroduction of very important public institutions like a public bank to introduce competition into the financial sector, to reintroduce public public institutions which provide essential services to people. Again, to provide competition. Because 30, 40 years ago, when we saw this uh, tsunami of deregulation and privatisation begin, we were told that we all be cheaper prices. Well, we haven't got cheaper prices. We've got a much more complex system and a much more expensive system at the end of the day. And what's another way of introducing competition into a capitalist economy? And I'm not talking about revolution. I'm talking about a capitalist economy. One, increase the role of the public sector. This provides competition against large corporations. And they say, oh, it's unfair competition. It's not unfair competition. You're not competing against the grocer down the road. You're competing against large corporations. And now that second way, a more innovative way of introducing competition is by building up a cooperative and collective sector to the economy. Today... In Australia, you'd be lucky to find one worker in maybe 10,000 belong to a cooperative or a collective. Now, the beauty about cooperatives and collectives is 
nobody gets rich. They're democratic in nature. Profits are shared. And they can provide goods and services to the community at a reasonable price because you don't have all those extra layers of uh, checks and balances that you need in a large private corporation because everybody's trying to steal off everybody else. But the dilemma as far as cooperatives and collectives are in Australia is there is no seeding funding. You cannot, you cannot access seeding funding in this country for cooperatives and collectives and all businesses need seeding funding in a capitalist economy. So what we have suggested for decades now is that if 1% of superannuation contributions are set aside to provide seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives, we could see a rapid increase in the number of cooperatives and collectives which are formed in the country who could provide essential services, provide secure long-term employment for the members of that cooperative and collective and provide a return to those superannuation companies that set aside 1% as seeding funding for cooperatives and collectives. And again, this would introduce a third tier of competition into the capitalist economy because obviously we can't have everything at once. But at least if we can introduce real competition into a capitalist economy through the creation of cooperatives and collectives and through the re-establishment of important essential public institutions to compete with the corporates, the privately owned corporate sector, then we would be in a much better position as far as access to goods and services is concerned. Think about it. Because these are essential questions we need to address if we want to make changes. Essential questions. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscan. I'm hosting the program. Want more information about the types of things that um, I talk about on this program? Go to my Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano or Toscano for the Public. Uh, go to the PIPSI website, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, and uh, download the application form and join Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. Go to the Anarchist Media Institute website. Go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, and the list goes on and on. All right, let's move on. Now, there's some interesting things happening in society today, especially in Western society. And they're interesting because we're coming to the end of the quantitative easing monetary cycle. You can only print or create, you don't even need to print it these days, but create so much money before questions are asked about how it's all going to be repaid. Because these debts which are taken on by the taxpayer or the citizens of a sovereign nation state, which is you and me, in a capitalist economy, 
need to be repaid. And we've seen an explosion in profitability on the world's stock markets and an explosion in rents and housing prices, especially in Australia. Which is these this explosion, especially in rents and housing prices, has been based on two things. One access to relatively cheap money because it's been created out of thin air and access not only to cheap money but access to legislative initiatives which put the investor always ahead of somebody who's looking for a roof over their heads and their family's heads. Always. And this legislation, which is based on negative gearing to some degree and other pieces of legislation, always put the interest of the investor first. So it's in the interest of the investor to take advantage of the cheap money, push up housing prices, get out of the market and make a profit from the capital gain. Very simple. So we've seen an artificially created rise in housing prices, which is not actually based on the problem of availability and increased population growth. Because there's one thing that COVID-19 has done. It has highlighted, it has highlighted that population growth has not been the main driver of the housing market, as we've been told, but cheap money and legislation, which always puts the interests of the investor in the housing market before the interests of people looking for a roof over their heads, whether it's a a mortgage or rent. But the party's coming to an end, and we've seen little jitters around the world. And we've seen the stock markets go up and down, up and down, up and down. We've seen large hedge funds and corporations try to hedge their bets as far as stock prices are concerned. And the problem is interest rates and inflation. Because as inflation rises and interest rate rise, all those people who have overextended themselves, you know, to borrow, you know, 700000 for a $1 million three-bedroom home in some outer suburb in a major capital city will find themselves under enormous, enormous pressure in order to meet those debts. So we're starting to see jitters in the financial markets. And if these jitters in the financial markets turn out to be significant, we will see a significant drop in workers' superannuation funds as almost 70 to 80% of all money currently that sits in a superannuation fund is now being invested in stock markets and and shares, stocks and shares believe it or not. No point investing it in the bank because the interest rates don't exist 
as far as return from bank investments. So people are superannuation funds have been taking risks with workers' money. At the same time, many people with unsustainable mortgages will find themselves out on the streets. I know it sounds pretty dramatic, but I'll tell you why. Unlike in the United States of America, if you can't meet your mortgage repayments, you leave the keys on the desk of the uh, the owners or whoever, the bank, and say, look, mate, I'm moving out. It's your problem. In Australia, it's a different ball game, And once again, we see no protection. It's a different ball game. If you bought a house for a million dollars... It sells for seven hundred thousand dollars, and your mortgage is eight hundred thousand dollars. The bank will pursue you for the one hundred thousand for the next foreseeable future until you're declared bankrupt, and that's a dilemma with def- with inflation and increasing interest rates, because it has r- it has real consequences. Especially for people who aren't investors. I don't care about the investors. That's their problem. Especially for people. Because, see, investors can actually carry over their losses a tax deduction. As somebody who owns one home or is paying off a house, you can't claim any losses as a tax deduction. You're just going to have to cough up. And if you can't cough up, bad luck. So we are in for a bumpy ride irrespective of what we're told. And then obviously you've got COVID-19 on top of that, which has added a, an interesting layer of complexity to the uh, private investments, you know, for private profit mantra, which has dominated every aspect of our lives for so long. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, just in case, just in case you think this is all going to be very serious, well, it is and it isn't. Now, I'm shocked. Shocked. Shocked to my bootstraps. Well, I'm actually not shocked. I'm actually amused. Um, I don't know if you know Stuart Roberts. He's the acting education minister. Now, I'm pretty familiar with this process. In the 1980s, I was granted a National Health Medical Research Grant in order to pursue a field of... Uh, of uh, medical investigation that I was interested in, right? which led to a doctorate of medicine. And the grant process was very exhaustive. You competed against other people looking for grants from the Commonwealth Government in order to um, get the grant. It was peer-reviewed on a number of occasions. And I was lucky enough, well, I assume the project was strong enough in order to be given the grant. Now, usually, the grant process is very exhaustive, whether it's in the arts field, the medical field, the science field. It's an exhaustive process which is peer-reviewed. And as a minister... You rely on the panels of experts who recommend that certain projects be supported financially so they can be completed. You normally sign off. Now, Mr Robert, 
I assume having a re-election promise, Mr Stuart Robert having a re-election promise, did something that hasn't been done ever. He has knocked back a number of the recommendations. And what was his answer? They are not in the national interest. Now, you know, I listen to the Liberal National Party crap on about, you know, the Chinese government and how they interfere in every aspect of life in their particular domain. Well, here we have a Liberal National Party acting minister, and I'll use the acting word, knocking back, knocking back grants, two which were based on you know, looking at modern China. I think another one was based on religion and science fiction and I've forgotten the others were based on, but pretty innocuous subjects. Knocking them back because they're not in the national interest. So now we have governments determining, not specialist panels, but governments determining who will receive a grant which particular projects are going to be supported and which projects are going to be rejected. As I said, this is unheard of. But what it highlights is the mentality of the current Morrison-led Liberal National Party. And it's a very simple mentality. The mentality is, one, get out of the way of corporations the private sector, by removing regulations and allowing them to have their head. Two, giving the private sector total control over the economy through privatisation. Three, allowing the private sector to dominate particular fields of human endeavour and now we have the situation where they say well we are the final arbitrators of what is and what isn't research that's in the national interest. Now Mr Robert will tell you well there are over 697 grants given out and I only knocked back six. The reality is the fact that they were knocked Backed after they'd been peer-reviewed by experts in those particular fields and recommended for funding, highlights how the government of the day is willing to use the power it is able to exercise in order to maintain its position. We saw this with the sports rorts. We saw this with the car park and railway station rorts. And we see it consistently when we see government initiatives which are put in place, not because they will provide services, but because they help the government of the day being re-elected. We've seen this in the fiasco surrounding the COVID-19 response as we lurch from disaster to disaster to disaster because there seems to be no forward planning, no specific understanding. And to a significant degree, that is because the government of the day is divided on how they should approach these issues. So to see 
a minister intervene because he believes that some projects are not in the national interest highlights how politicised the issue of grants have become in this country. And when you've got political insiders or so-called political leaders determining what is and what isn't in the national interest, as far as research is concerned, you realise that we've reached a very, very difficult situation. Now, I want to talk about something a little bit more forthcoming, a little bit more interesting. Now, the 20th of January this year marks the 180th anniversary of the execution of the two Indigenous freedom fighters, Tanaminawe and Mulbohina, and those of you that listened to last week's program will know the background to this. Now, every year since 2004, we've, we've held a commemoration to mark the execution of Tanaminawe and Mulbohina for the heinous crime of resisting white colonisation, both in Tasmania and Victoria. And after a 14-year struggle, it was a particularly difficult struggle, we were able basically to force the Melbourne City Council to establish a monument to Tunnamanaway and Mulbohina at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets here in Melbourne. And this monument is a monument to the frontier wars, the undeclared frontier wars, which created so much pain and misery among this country's First Nations people. Now, Tanaminawe and Mulbohina are only just two names. There are people around Australia who are related to people who died in that war, and that war which continues, the colonisation process which continues. And we'd like to see the 20th of January, the day that Tundaminawe and Mulbohina were executed for resisting white colonisation, as a day that is celebrated, commemorated around the country as National First Nations People Freedom Fighters Day. Because every inch of this blood-soaked continent has a history of resistance. This is just one story. The thing about Tandamunaway, Morborhina, Pitirana, Planobina and Traganini, it's a story that belongs to every one of us. It's a, sto- it's a foundation story. It's a story about love and passion and anger and revenge. You know, it's, I, I find it extraordinary over the last 20 years when I've been involved in this struggle, you know, as a the convener of the Tundaminaway and Mulbohina Commemoration Committee and as the co-founder with my late wife, Ellen Hosea, of the Tundaminaway and Mulbohina Commemoration Committee, I find it extraordinary how much Australians know about, you know, Sitting Bull, the Comanches, the Apaches, obviously, you know, 50s and 60s cowboy movies, but how little we know about the history of how this continent was colonised, how we don't actually remember 
those who died in that struggle. I mean, you go to every town, every suburb, there'll be a monument to Australians who died fighting other people's wars overseas. But where are the monuments to the resistance fighters who fought against colonisation, who fought to protect their families, their culture, their language, their way of life, their friends? Where are they? I would have thought since 2016, when the Tanaminoa Mōbōhina monument was established, that we would have seen many, many other monuments established around the country. Many other monuments, but we don't. So, COVID-19 or no COVID-19, obviously we'll take every precaution that needs to be taken. Join us on Thursday, that's Thursday week, the 20th of January, at midday, at the monument site at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne, in the Melbourne CBD, to mark that extraordinary event. Come and listen to the uh, speakers and singers that we have to mark that event, including Senator Lydia Thorpe. And at uh, one o'clock, around one o'clock at the end, come and join us as we walk silently to the Queen Victoria markets to pay our respects at what we believe is the last resting place of Tanaminoa Mōbōhina. So this is an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing struggle. It's a national struggle. Because in order, as the Uluru Statement from the Heart said in 2016, in order for the process of reconciliation to begin, you need truth-telling. And the Lest We Forget memorial which we hold to commemorate the execution of Tanaminua Mōbōhina on the 20th of January, 1842, 180 years ago, is based on that truth-telling. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, look, I know you think that I'm, going to, I'm making this up. I know you think I'm going to make this up. Uh, do you know the CFMMEU has just been fined $75,000 for intemperate speech? And that the uh, Building Commission, our f- friends in the Building Commission, which was established to destroy the CFMEU, is appealing the fine because it's not big enough. And it's extraordinary that as far as the Fair Work Commission legislation is concerned, now the struggle was very simple. It was the, it was the struggle to build a new tunnel. You know, I think Holland is, uh, was the company. And there was a safety issue. And, and two union organisers put a stop to building for a few hours because of that particular safety issue, right, until the issue was resolved. And it was an issue which could have had profound implications for the workers involved as far as injury and death is concerned. Now, when the police arrived and when the, uh, there were some safety inspectors there, the two um, 
organisers used a little bit of colourful speech. Things like calling them rats, lapdogs, what else? Lapdogs, corrupt. These were some of the words that were used. And for having the audacity to vent their feelings, no physical violence, just saying you bloody rats, you bloody lapdogs, you know, bloody corruption, this is corruption. You've got the police working for, you know, the, the employer and not the employees. $75,000 fine. And the building commission is appealing because it's not big enough. Not big enough. This is for a few words that were spoken. Now, I'm sure that if this occurred in Hong Kong or Kazakhstan or Afghanistan, it would be front-page news. Front-page news here in Australia as we, you know, fight for other people's rights. But we, here we have... Here we have a $75,000 fine, which is not thought to be enough, handed down to two union organisers for opening their mouths and using a little bit of colourful language. And it's all in the Fair Work Act, intemperate speech. Now, obviously we've forgotten that you can't strike in this country outside an enterprising enterprise bargaining agreement period after you've jumped all through all the hoops and once you've jumped through the hoops and if the membership has decided to strike for two hours the Fair Work Commission can actually stop the strike from occurring and if you go ahead with the strike you can get fined $10,000 per worker involved and if you're a member of the CFMMEU, the Construction, Forestry, Mining, Maritime and Energy Union right you can be called in at any time to answer questions about any union activity you've been involved in or a meeting. And if you refuse to answer questions, you can be jailed. And you can be fined $10,000 a day for being involved in an unauthorised strike. And we see unions being handed down fines in the millions of dollars because they've been working to protect the interests of their members. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's not happening in communist China, it's happening here in Australia. And the tragedy is, most Australians have no idea about it and most of them agree. You know, I could import a billion dollars of meth tomorrow, okay? And I would have more legal rights than a member of the CFMMEU. Do you know that? We were forced to ask questions. I can say, no comment, no comment, no comment, no comment, no comment. They say no comment if they're being interrogated by this, you know, this star chamber. They get fined in jail. They're forced to answer questions. Extraordinary. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Let's move on. Now, I'm sick and tired of people crying out about a lack of labour in this country. Because, you see, we've got a brilliant business plan in Australia. See, small business, is, as I said at the beginning of the program, is in such a squeeze because of the domination of most aspects of living in this country by a handful of different corporations and different sectors that they have to cut corners in order to survive, especially during a COVID-19 period. 
So what do they rely on? The business model is very simple. You rely on cheap, non-unionised labour, whether it's local, cheap, non-unionised labour, or cheap, non-unionised labour, which is bought here to Australia on short-term contracts. And don't forget that one in seven Australian workers before COVID-19 hit were basically people from overseas who had, who had come here to provide cheap, non-unionised labour. Now, I've got nothing against that. What I've got against is the exploitation which occurs. And when restaurants carry on about their ability not to make a buck, and when you see big corporations like 7-Eleven and their franchise deals and the fact that the people who buy the franchises underpay their workers in order, in order to survive, you begin to understand how this business model has now become part and parcel of everyday life in this country. Just an extraordinary situation to find ourselves in in 2022, where you need to rely on non-unionised, cheap labour in order to survive as a business because of the domination of the corporate sector of uh, most aspects of the economy in this country. Just extraordinary. Now, let's talk to the issue of the day. Novak versus Julian. Poor old Novak. Well, I don't know if the Australian government's going to have the guts to kick him out, but I've got a great deal of respect for the uh, Serbian Prime Minister. I was listening to her speak, and she, she, she said something very interesting, which kind of set alarm bells ringing off in my head. She said to Mr Morrison, she said, look, it's your decision, it's your immigration laws, but irrespective of the decision, we will support, as a government, we will support Novak and his family. Hmm? Nice sentiments, aren't they? We will support. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't there a bloke called Julian Assange rotting in prison in England? Have we seen Mr Morrison say anything in support of Mr Julian Assange? Have we seen the Liberal, especially the Liberal Party, show any support for Mr Assange? Have they demanded that Mr Assange be returned back to Australia as a matter of urgency? No. Not once during this decade-long, decade-plus-long saga have we heard elements of the government, federal government, do anything to protect their citizen, a man born in this country, their citizen, who's been tried for the heinous crime of uh, sharing a little bit of information, journalism. Extraordinary, isn't it? You hear the Serbian Prime Minister tell us, you know, well, whatever you decide, that's your problem, but, you know, we'll support Mr. No- Mr. Novak and his family. But we hear a word about Julian Assange, and think of the irony. Poor Mr. Novak, non-vaccinated, a little bit, you know, a bit loose with the truth, a bit loose with the truth, you know. I got COVID-19 and, you know... Mixing around the next day, not isolating, a little bit loose with the truth, you know. 
um, denied entry by border force, and then the federal circuit court judge says, "Well, the man was denied due process. Trial's over in a day. He's incarcerated by border force in the same hotel where people have been waiting nine years. Nine years. Did they murder anybody? No." Did they rape anybody? No. Did they steal? No. But they've been incorporated for nine years and they're still waiting, still waiting for their claims to be processed. Of the 60,000 asylum seekers and refugees living in this country currently, and most of their uh, applications are rejected during the first round. It's a government bureaucrat that looks at their application. They're waiting four to six years, seven years, eight years for their case to be heard, reheard. Extraordinary. Novak, a few days, back on the tennis court. I don't blame Novak. I blame the Australian Tennis Association. You concerned about the situation, whether Novak is deported or not, doesn't really matter. What actually matters is give the sponsors a hard time. Hyundai, give the sponsors a hard time. The ANZ Bank, give the Tennis Association. They're taking space in a publicly owned facility, Melbourne Park. Eject them from, send them back to Kuyong where they belong. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week. Broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. YouTube channel, Joseph, um, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public. Uh, uh, web pages, anarchismedia.org. Pibci, P-I-B-C-I dot net. That stands for Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Remember, I can rabbit on till the end of time or the end of my time, but if you want change, you need to become involved. I encourage you at least join Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Listen to the program next week. doesn't matter where you live in Australia. Get involved. Start fighting back. Otherwise, it's going to be more of the same corporate crap in 2022. I mean, COVID-19, a little bit of a diversion, a, a real health issue, but the issues, the fundamental central issues which have plagued us as a society continue to plague us, COVID-19 or no COVID-19. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the community, lo- community radio station, community radio network on your local community radio station. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. You can email me or you can even write Post Office Box 20, Parkville 305. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.